my my wife went into the doctor today and she got to hear our baby's heartbeat. And you know how normal babies, normal babies' heartbeats go one, two, three, four. Ours went one, two, a one, two, three, four. <laughs> That's a that's a Bruce Springsteen reference for people Thank who haven't been to a live show. That's a good sign, though, right? <laughs> that's an that excellent good, sign. That is right. That means sign. that means my baby has a, a hungry heart. Uh, who out there? One, two, one, two, three, four. Hey everybody, welcome to the Margin of Error. I'm your co-host Alan Brandsitter, and I'm here with my uh, other co-host. That's awkward, Carson Starkey. Carson, how you doing, man? <laughs> Good to be here. Glad to uh, enjoy another opportunity to speak to the folks. <laughs> uh, and we've also got uh, our guest host Troy Olson, live from New York. How you doing, Troy? Pretty good, Alan. How are you? No, I'm surviving. I'm surviving this dystopian existence of uh, Trump's America deep in the heartland of Brownbackistan. So. I see. I'm trying. I'm trying to shake up. I'm trying to shake up the the uh, what was not my best post earlier. So I'm trying to shake that off. Yeah, Troy. Troy had an unfortunate run-in with old army buddies. So, and as Carson said, they always bring me down. Veterans, man veterans it's that there's that there's that walter zoke check in all of us well it's funny because sometimes you know you know i have a i'm a couple semesters away from attaining my phd but i'm working at a bakery and a grocery store so i sometimes feel like i need to go down to the bfw and drink (laughs) then then i remember then i remember who hangs out at the bfw and i don't right Do you you think the millennial VFW will ultimately, or Iraq, Afghanistan era vets, the the VFW will ultimately be be podcasts? Um, Uh, That'd be be a worthwhile investment. All we got to do is put a beer right in front of us. Well, at least you could turn it off and just drink in peace. Yeah, instead of hearing hearing racial slurs and complaints that too many women are in the bar. Well, the problem with the VFW is it's always full of like hipsters who think it's ironic to go drink at the VFW. That's right. Right. Well, meat raffles, right? They think meat raffles are great too. Which, admittedly, yes, I like. <laughs> no, it's true. Right? Legions and legions of the VFWs have meat raffles. I would be fine with bingo and the occasional meat raffle. We have one uh, six blocks away from where I live. But it's very, like you said, it's very much a cultural problem. And then yeah. once you get kind of deeper into the whole structure of the of the legion or the vfw basically their only two functions are to campaign for ronald reagan's corpse and to you know what i mean yeah. and to complain and to complain that too many people are speaking spanish in 21st century america so anyway yeah well i was a member for a full year they gave me a free membership after i got off the plane 
Me too. For my rack. What? Yeah. Man. Same thing. Yeah. They were, like, they were like right at the. Uh, yeah, they're at the foot. Of, they're at the foot of the freaking <laughs> ramp. They had some old guy with uh, one of those piss cutter hats on, and he was like, "Welcome home, son. Here's your free membership." <laughs> piss cutter hats. It's like great. <laughs> Can I go see my family now? No. <laughs> yeah, in 14 days you can. No, I, I had that too in, in, in Texas when I lived in Texas for an extra year after I got out. I had the same free membership thing, yeah. Man, yeah. glory days. Then you got that, that stupid magazine. Oh, my God. Well, yeah. which is all about flag-burning amendments. And right. Flag-burning amendments. Yep, absolutely. The agenda's right in front of me. Um, why you should... Actually, this is the American Legion. Um, not quite. <laughs> a little bit by the way, by yeah. the way, I, I am considering joining the Harlem American Legion because those cats are cool. So, well, again, you know, local chapters have their own characters, so I can imagine that the Harlem VFW is pretty cool. So, right, Far- I'm looking for flag burning. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna find it. Okay, Pillar Three: Americanism, U.S. What? flag right. protection and education. So yeah. there we are. It's well, the top it's pillar. right. Is it right next to the ad for like the the stretchy jeans and the triple E wide shoes? <laughs> um, no, but it is next to an ad with for a uh, a, a new age uh, baseball catcher with the oh, okay. uh, hockey esque helmet. Uh, yeah. Boys State is at the bottom. Boys State Boys Nation because uh, we all remember Jimmy Stewart's appeal uh, <laughs> for yep. common sense policy. Uh, yep, in um, the Frank Capra classic. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Wasn't that about building infrastructure too? It was. He he appealed uh, to infrastructure, but what was interesting is is how incredibly sensible the policy he was uh, filibustering under. But um, speaking of, based, based on the real life person, Strom Thurmond, right? Which is disheartening. Right, right. Well, c- compared to what everything else we know about Capra, it is an yeah, interesting. It is an interesting sidebar. Right. Anecdote. Yeah. Well, it was a world and culture dominated by white people. So it's the best we could hope for. Right. <laughs> uh, all right. So, uh, anyways, <laughs> in, in this week's episode, not only do you get three, three guys talking about politics, uh, this week we're going to talk about the Republican ACA replacement plan, Trump's super bad weekend, Steve Bannon reads, and impoverished millennials. So uh, (laughs) our first topic, so after years of expectations, the House Republicans released their bill uh, to uh, repeal the ACA. Uh, The bill has been under physical lock and key in the Capitol for days, and Republicans are hoping to pass the bill quickly before Congress has to take yet another recess, has to take another recess. Those motherfuckers love recess. Um, (laughs) But they're hoping to pass this before they have to face uh, constituents and possibly have to, you know, realize that people hate it and end up changing their mind. Um, For his part, Donald Trump loves the bill. He says he's proud of the Republican plan and he wants Congress to move quickly to pass it. He also said that, quote, I'm already seeing the support not only in this room, I'm seeing it from everybody. Uh, in reality, the bill is proving to be exceptionally unpopular, including among moderate and right-wing House Republicans. The Freedom Caucus believes it's just Obamacare light. Um, Republican medical lobbyists hate the bill, as well as some important conservative interest groups. The big part, the first big part, I guess we'll run down a bullet point of exactly what this bill does. Uh, the first point is repealing the individual mandate. 
Guys, is repealing the individual man- mandate a good idea or a bad idea? Well, in the context of, of, of what else they are doing, it is a bad idea. Yeah. Philosophically, I think it's a good idea because we should have single-payer health care <laughs> rather than yeah. forcing people to be customers <laughs> of private insurance companies without a decent public alternative. Right. Um, so in the context, it's a, it, it's, it's a bad idea of everything right. else. Because otherwise, because now all the stuff that is good about the ACA becomes unworkable without the mandate. I mean, all it'll do is increase the cost of insurance for old people and sick people because young people and healthy people won't buy insurance. Right. And- which has been the which has been the argument the entire time, right? Is that conservatives are uh, attending Rand Paul functions together? Yeah. And they go they they wear white T-shirts with um, you know sort of fraternity logos on them and say, you know, sign <laughs> join the Libertarian. Become become a libertarian, read Ayn Rand, and and you know attend the local uh, Tea Party event because we're we're looking out for millennials by not making you get it, by by allowing you to go without health insurance because somehow if you crash your if you ca- if you crash your mountain bike in the you know in the middle of San Francisco you don't need health care because your your broken leg will somehow fix itself yeah um, right yeah it's very weird right is that we're we're at this moment where conservatives are trying to convince and and more than one of one of them has said this right more than one house republican or more than one congressional republican has said well we're, we want to talk about access to health yeah. insurance because health insurance itself is worthless right one i, I right. forget the elected official's name who said there's there's just nothing we can do to remove the, the problem of people without health insurance we're always going to have people without health insurance so health insurance is worthless mm-hmm. i don't know how the people whose parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts have received health insurance to save their lives from kidney transplants or disease uh, or chronic healthcare problems would react to that after the past six years. What comes to mind is that family from Paducah, Kentucky, right? The one that's in Vox, um, who, who's, whose father would be dead were it not for the Affordable Care Act, but right. they voted for Donald Trump because hate voting. So we're going to we're going to see some interesting we're going to see some interesting consequences and reactions. Well, a conservative opposition to the individual mandate has been based on kind of two points. One, uh being forced to buy insurance impedes your freedom for some weird reason. And the other part too is that the penalty, <laughs> the, the 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 fee you have to pay, the penalty you have to pay if you don't buy insurance amounts to a tax. Right. So they're always against tax. And so what's what's their solution? They want to they want to replace it with a, quote, continuous coverage incentive, which is basically a 30 percent penalty uh, for anyone whose health insurance lapses. Right. So that a that a private insurer can charge the person whose health insurance. Right. So they're opposed to the tax, but by all means, allow insurers to charge you more. Sure. To direct more welfare upward. Republicans hate taxes, but they love fees. You know, rich people can pay fees, but poor people can't. It's regressive, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely regressive. And that you know, they they love this shit. So the other the other things that the uh, the GOP um, replacement does is it repeals the employer mandate, which is uh, concerning because the majority of Americans get their health insurance from their employers. Um, it repeals subsidies for out of pocket pocket expenses. Under ACA, tax credits for middle-income Americans were distributed according to a sliding scale uh, that was based on income. Under the new plan, it'll be distributed according to age instead of income. So 
As a result, a person under 30 would receive half the federal assistance that's offered to people over 60. Uh, It'll reduce and cap funding for Obamacare's Medicaid expansion, which is non-existent in a lot of states, uh, which is the reason why Obamacare struggles in places like the Deep South. It raises the amount of tax-free money individuals and families can put in health savings accounts, which is useless for poor people and middle-class people who have no disposable income to put into HSIs. Um, <laughs> under, so I'm, I'm rambling on because this is a freaking shit-tastic bill. Under ACA, insurers could only charge their oldest customers three times as much as the youngest ones. Under the GOP plan, they can charge as much as five times the amount, and it also gives states the option to set their own ratio because you have to have uh, an obligatory reference to states' rights. It keeps <laughs> it keeps dependents. Um, it keeps the dependent coverage until twenty six. It keeps the pre existing condition uh, pre existing conditions policy. Uh, it keeps the ten essential health benefits mandated by ACA, and it keeps the prohibition of annual and lifetime limits. So uh, it keeps three, uh, or actually four of the most popular parts of ACA, but it basically guts the, the markets that were set up by Obamacare. The only purpose, right, this is something that's come up a lot across the, the blogosphere. The only purpose, the fundamental purpose, the, the monomaniacal purpose of the Republican Party and this particular bill, and every bill, right, whether it's Paul Ryan or some other re- Republican elected official, that they, as they understand it, to pass every bill as a tax cut. And that's what this yeah. is, right? This is fundamentally a tax cut t- designed to trick people into thinking that they'll be able to buy health insurance. Removing all the taxes to fund Medicaid expansion and removing all the taxes to, to basically to force people who are younger and healthier to buy insurance so that they can subsidize people who are older and sicker. That's a tax cut, right? Removing block granting Medicaid, block granting Medicaid so that States uh, mostly in the, in the old Confederacy can just not spend Medicaid money is a tax cut. Um, And it's meant to defund Medicaid. So here we are again, talking about it. It was, it was projected that this bill will cut $600 billion in taxes to rich Americans and insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies uh, while taking healthcare away from 10 to 20 million Americans. So, I mean, (laughs) I don't, I don't think the Republicans would even contest that. Right. I mean, they're willing to accept the fact that 10 to 20 million Americans will lose coverage. Because, like you said, they, they don't think it's realistic to believe that those people can be covered in a fiscally responsible way. Now, you know, some people have been making a lot of a noise about the reason why this bill is so bad is because Republicans have never actually stopped to think about what they would replace Obamacare with. But other people have also said that, you know, this bill isn't necessarily bad for the Republicans. It's a fair reflection of their worldview. Mm. So, I mean, and I'll oppose this to, to Troy first. Troy, do you think that this bill is uh, a sign of the ineptitude of the Republican Party, or is it just really, you know, it's what Paul Ryan and and the Republicans actually want? Uh, I, I think it's not even as far enough as what they actually really want. I, I think what they would prefer is even going back to Nixon's universal emergency care mandate and, and repealing that. That is what I think their complete wet dream is. Yeah, I agree. Um, I got to say, at least that would not bankrupt people. I don't know, not to get philosophical, but I think death is preferable to sickness and bankruptcy, plus bankruptcy at the same time. 
with mm-hmm. still declining health and then eventually death and having that being passed on to your heirs. I, I, so I think that the, the, the revolt on the right is related to, what would you say, 10 essential items of the ACA? Yeah, the uh, 10 essential health benefits mandated by ACA. Yeah, yeah I, quite frankly, I think they, um, the, the revolt on the right, probably from the think tank crowd, um, who says uh, things like government is violence, etc., and taxation <laughs> is theft. Um, <laughs> the revolt from that crowd is is probably because they would like to do away with things like pre-existing conditions, and yeah. it it doesn't go far enough. At the, at the press conference, Sean Spicer pointed at the big stack of paper, which was Obamacare, and he said, "This is government." And then he pointed at the short stack, which was the Republican replacement plan, and he said, "This is not government." Right. So it's you're you're right. This is totally reflective of the stain for government spoken like somebody that wouldn't have to sit through and read something and has never been trusted to read anything that matters. Uh, so I just, you know, it's important though, to think speaking, going back, right. So whether it's Richard Nixon or, um, more recently, so Willard Romney said very, very plainly as a very much planned effort and without, without a, without a second hesitation, um, we have national health insurance in America. It's the emergency room. We take people to the emergency room and you can go there and get health care. Very fair point, Mitt. Like very, you're being is. very honest. Yeah. yeah, you're being very honest under very and direct conditions. And that's a very good answer that reflects what you think. It does sound cruel to say it. But if you really want to solve American health care, we have to take the 10 programs we have, combine it into one that works and let private insurers compete for those that want to get more. We need to have some single payer. And whether that's done yeah, state no, state or whether that's done federally, I don't care. But it, I think it would be cheaper to just have one program and one bureaucracy rather than have Medicaid, Medicare, S-CHIP, ACA, yeah. marketplaces, state by state. Yeah. Because um, of course it would be. Yeah, would everyone, be. yeah, of course it would be. Yeah. It just going, going back to what they said, though, too, and like you're, like you're right, Troy, the, and again, in 2014, Mike Huckabee said it, too. There are just some people you can't insure, right? That was his argument against pre-existing conditions is that, well – we just go back to 2009 and pretend that nothing afterwards happened. That's very much a popular view among plenty of conservatives is that it's just yeah. too expensive and we shouldn't be. And this is something that they started out with, right? Uh, Kevin McCarthy, the one of the house, I think it's the house whip house majority whip said, you know, we start from the premise that we should be talking about affordability. And of course, to be affordable and to not cover 10 or 20 million extra people and just let them lose their health insurance. Well, in the broadest sense of the phrase, that is affordable. Well, you know, it boils down, it boils down to the fundamental argument was whether or not healthcare is a right or a product you buy on a free market, right? So, I mean, if if health insurance was like every other health insurance, so let's say like homeowners insurance, you build a house on a floodplain, they're not going to insure your house. Unfortunately, like human beings aren't property, right? I think we 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 settled that issue 150 years ago, 175 years ago. So, like. <laughs> In, in a civilized world, you, you don't let people die because they're too poor to afford immunizations or mammograms, right? Because immunizations, mammograms, and cancer screenings aren't luxuries that you buy, right? They're, they're rights of human beings. And if, if you don't believe that's the case, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. Tangentially, that's another item, too, is that the, uh, the Republican replacement plan is a massive attack on contraception and access mm-hmm. to Planned yeah. Parenthood. Massive effort to defund and eradicate Planned Parenthood 
um, unless they give up the ring, as Donald Trump said this week, they can just not perform abortions and they can get extra funding. Well, of course, of course, nobody would ever need an abortion, right? Unless, you know, they were, unless their lives were at risk, but. And also 10% of this bill, 10% of this bill was dedicated to new approaches to effectively taxing lottery winnings. The Republican replacement plan is 60 pages long and 10 of those pages is dedicated to taxing lottery winnings. So <laughs> that's revealing. It doesn't seem pertinent, but that's revealing. That's revealing. It is. That is very revealing. Um, that is the that one is log by which the lower and middle lower class has to making it. In other words, <laughs> getting no, out of debt because in you other have words, cancer. No amount of belief in the magic is ever going to get you or ever going to get most people where they'd like to go. So <laughs> you can win the lottery. Now, there's another version of the lottery. It's called being born a Rockefeller or something. Um, that's winning the lottery without even doing anything. At least folks that have to go win the lottery have to go purchase a ticket and then watch TV and make sure that the numbers lined up. That's at least some sort of effort. Um, so we are now going to devote 10 pages to taxing the one way in which a, a regular Joe, Jane, or Union John can make it rich in this country serious public policy and and people accuse them of being unserious for the eight years that barry was in office we, we not tax draftees of of the baseball draft as well that <laughs> made below a certain amount of income because they are going from like the impoverished uh, mississippi kid who plays a mean center field um who got drafted in the first round and got two million dollar bonus we should enact a flat one million dollar tax on that on that draft signing um, we should, we should also are. make sure that he he never gets a dime while he's playing ball in college. <laughs> right. Absolutely. The slavery. We should just make you know, it even more direct. And what's so bad about this is that, you know, they're focusing so much on increasing the tax burden on poor Americans and middle class Americans. And yet they went out of their way to make sure that insurance companies who pay their executives more than half a million dollars a year get a tax break because taxes. it's like you yeah because, because taxes. Taxes. and it's like you said troy it's more than just like this is this isn't just like libertarian philosophy or anything it's like it's an aggressive assault on poor people yeah it's class warfare yeah absolutely well they don't believe in class warfare so no they they do believe in class warfare. <laughs> they, they believe in class warfare and also identity politics yeah. Um, they invented identity politics. It's called white nationalism. And the Democrats <laughs> endorsed identity politics by taking everything that was left because, yeah. um, you know, they slept in that day and they got to the they got to the identity draft <laughs> a little bit later. And didn't Chappelle have a, 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 a skit on the racial draft? Yeah, but they, that's the point. Yeah, they took they had to take John Lewis instead of uh, Richard Nixon, which I admittedly, based on personal beliefs and, you know, ethical okay. outcomes, I'd still take I still take that pick, too. But you're right. We right. were definitely late to the draft floor. You're right about that. So, Carson, Carson, now that boomers can be charged more for their health insurance, how will they ever scrape up that down payment for a condo at Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville? <laughs> <Thank> God, <laughs> <laughs> Which was a popular episode last week, I'm told. My oh. friends from California loved it. Um, <laughs> I listened to it. Linnea, thank you. No, and Linnea yeah. and Sarah, if you're listening, we're going to have some more Jimmy Buffett. So here you are. Um, no, I think <laughs> so. Work until work until 80, right? Make sure that no other jobs come available uh, for anybody under the age of 40, and then, well, elect more conservatives to make sure that they get subsidies to buy things that they don't need, yeah. like a down payment for a Jimmy Buffett 
uh, condo. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Well, this will this will also come into play in our discussion about the economic uh, prospects of millennials. But millennials already understand that we're going to have to work harder and for less and and longer to attain any comfort in our senior years because we know that Xers and Boomers are going to spend the next 20, 30 years destroying every responsible and useful social safety net that exists today. All while claiming to be apolitical. And we're we're just uh we're just regular people and we uh you know we love we love our Hey man, hey man, why don't you just get a license to chill? (laughs) (laughs) No bad days, bro. My my I believe that this should be a margin of error bumper sticker, the quote uh regarding the, the Buffett retirement community. When I think it's Alan, he said, "Jimmy Buffett doesn't make music. He he's not selling music. He's he's selling a lifestyle." That's Carson. Quote unquote, <laughs> Is that Carson? Music. Oh, yeah. No, sorry. It should Let's say. It should say. I love. I love Jimmy Buffett. Quote unquote music. <laughs> uh yeah. Okay. So uh, let's move on to the next topic. This was going to be our main. Uh, lead before the ACA replacement bill came out. But last weekend, Donald Trump had a uh, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad weekend. Early Saturday morning, Trump rose from his slumber and tweeted that Obama had been wiretapping his New York offices during the 2016 election and compared the former president's actions to McCarthyism before calling President Blackenstein, quote, a bad or sick guy. Exclamation point. <laughs> so Recent history has taught President Trump that congressional Republicans, who can almost taste the sweet nectar of billions of dollars in tax cuts to millionaires, would back his <laughs> accusations. Uh, but Trump had to swallow the bitter pill that Republicans wouldn't back even this craziness. Uh, so in an article by Philip Rucker, Ashley Parker, and uh, Robert Costa uh, in the Washington Post titled Inside Trump's Fury, the President's Rages – at leaks, setbacks, and accusations. They describe a basically a four-day-long meltdown uh, by Donald Trump, where the president uh, blew up at his staff for not uh, backing up his claims that Obama backed his uh, Obama uh, was tapping into his his New York into Trump Tower, his tirade about secret Obama line critics in the federal bureaucracy and the deep state. Essentially, Trump got so mad that he stormed off to Mar-a-Lago to play a round of golf and had to be cheered up um, by his staff. And what's funny is the way his chap- his staff cheered him up over dinner is they showed him they, – they talked to him about his plan uh, Muslim ban, his reforms to his Muslim ban. So <laughs> – <laughs> that's think a mad of, ki- that's a mad king stuff right there think of how i know much, right if you're gonna improve your day think about how much misery you can impose on people who can't fight back incompetent cruel, vindictive um, that's that's but apparently that was divisive all right calling, and it's calling the president cruel vindictive and incompetent is it stop dividing america troy yeah. <laughs> i'm the one who divided america yeah on one hand, he has people like you know establishment Republicans within the White House who aren't telling him no, but are are trying to manage him. Like uh, you know, like a parent who doesn't want to overdiscipline their you know misbehaving toddler. And on the other hand, you've got people like Steve Bannon who are just kind of stoking the fire within Donald Trump. You know, everything that fuels his deep sense of narcissism and paranoia. 
Steve Bannon is like slowly massaging and it's just, it will it be weeks or months before Trump locks himself in the oval office to watch sunset Boulevard. And the only time they ever see him is when like this <laughs> decrepit pale hand reaches out behind the door to drop yet another jar of urine off in the hallway for like some aid to carry away. Like he's a crazy Howard Hughes or something like that. But I am I, big. I am big league. I am big league. He's big league. Big league. Hashtag I am big league. <laughs> yeah. uh, Jason Kander, uh, speaking of people that we'd like to see rise in the system. So Jason Kander had a tweet. I think it was on, uh, maybe it was Sunday afternoon or Monday morning. Um, but a person that is always watching cable news, hangs out in Florida and refuses to work and then complains after he hears news that he doesn't like. Right. Right. That's not really a, that you're not talking about president. You're talking about a retiree. Right. Um, you know, that was very, that was very telling. And that, James Clapper had a good, very short explanation. James Clapper is not exactly, you know, a friendly dude either. We can talk more about the deep state, yeah. but James Clapper was one of these guys that has been around government for his entire, you know, working career. As he explained in one sentence, I think he's confused about what the problem is because he could just declassify whatever information he wants. Mm-hmm. He's, yeah. he's the president. Like well, he asking, asking congressional Republicans to investigate is the response of somebody that watches four hours of cable news a day. It's not, you're not just calling into Sean Hannity to shout on talk radio. You can actually do something to declassify the information and then make it known to the public. But of course we all know, right. We all know flatly that no such evidence exists. So there's nothing to declassify, but well, I have to say, we for people that want good public policy outcomes for Americans, we should be thankful that uh, Trump is proving to be what we thought he was, incompetent, because they do have a one-party state. And if he was competent, that, that agenda would be moving through there a lot faster. Yeah, Dr- Grover Norcus would be would be hand would be hand and glove side by side every day with President Marco Rubio or, Mar- or John Kay's. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like or John right. Kay's. Yeah, he would be. There'd be There'd be there'd be three bills through the through the office already, and we'd be working on dissolving Social Security permanently. It'd be a uh, be a scary day. Speaking of the the esteemed junior senator from Florida, or is he the senior senator now? <sighs> uh, I suppose. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, anyways, has anybody seen him lately? He looks horrible. Like he's <laughs> not he is not enjoying the Trump Trump presidency. No. Well, and he and he thinks that it, and maybe rightly or wrongly, you know, thinks that. He missed his he missed his spot, so now he's got to wait at least another four years, right? He's well, he's he's angry for reasons or, that are or eight years justified. if you talk to some Republican friends I have, or or eight years. No, he, yeah. he's 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 angry because he missed his spot, so that's fair. Well, I mean, when he when he primary challenges Trump in twenty twenty, he's no longer going to be able to run as the taste of the new generation because he looks old. Right. His giant old man <laughs> ears are giving away his age. <laughs> they'll, they'll they'll run faux libertarian Justin Amash because he's a serious person. <laughs> Tom Cotton, man. Tom, Tom Cotton. Cotton, I gotta, Tom Cotton. They, gotta get back. they have a deep bench, man. They have a deep bench. It, they could run whoever. Well, so then Jeff said this opens the field, right? Jeff Sessions is gonna you know re-embrace 1977 again. We get to go back to uh, the drug war, like full drug war. Maybe not 1977. Nixon was in 70. Nixon left in 74. But so we get to go full drug war. And then Tom, that's going to be the perfect platform for Tom Cotton to talk about why we need not to reduce the total prison population, but to expand the prison population. So, well, yeah, I was watching. Uh, I was watching um, uh, the Vice uh, special report on Iraq, 
And it was this reminds me of an earlier episode when we were talking about Narcos, which I think is something we should all watch again because Jeff Sessions and the drug war and Trump's inability to kind of manage any international affairs uh, or military affairs are going to lead to kind of a, another narco war. Um, but the handling of the war against ISIS in Iraq re- reminds me a lot of funding paramilitary groups in Colombia to fight communists and, and, and Pablo Escobar, right? So you, we, <laughs> we have the Kurds who are not, we're not funding or we're not sending any supplies to who tend to be uh, to lean more toward, I mean, they want a separate state, but they also lean more towards kind of pluralism but we're ton- we're dumping a ton of money and resources into the Iraqi government, which is also backed by Iran and is also like radically uh, sectarian as well. So we're we're not only just you know we're again we're picking what we think are the lesser of two evils, but they also they turned out to be they're going to turn out to be just as bad as the people we're trying to beat. Well, can you yeah. – and it's like – so this came up. I think it was on Slate. Um, I forget <clears> if it wasn't – maybe it was Fred Kaplan. But, um, you know, can you imagine what would actually happen if he had to handle a real – it's been 40-plus days of basically nothing, right? Yeah. It, and Troy hinted at it in a social media status update earlier tonight, which drew some ire. But it is true that Barry handled the first 60 days pretty well. He got a lot mm-hmm. accomplished, right? The American Reinvestment Recovery Act was kind of a big deal and preventing a catastrophic economic meltdown beyond what had happened after George W. Bush left office. That was pretty important. Can you imagine if the, if the past 40 days had involved some real challenge of intricacy and diplomacy and some sort of discussion about what had to happen in a foreign crisis, right? Like Steve Bannon would have, would have, you know, sprinted across the floor at the United Nations and punched the Indian ambassador in the face <laughs> You know what I mean? Like it would have been just preposterous. Yeah. So Kellyanne Conway would have been like, you know, on T on TV having to explain why there was a fist fight on the United Nations floor. Um, and India and Pakistan were, you know, exchanging nuclear blows. So like you said, can you imagine what the, what that kind of explanation would be in bullet points on, you know, uh, note cards to Donald Trump if someone actually had to talk to him in a, in a way that conveys <laughs> factual information about right. the, the, the differing factions in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria yeah, it's it's gonna be when when the when the first confrontation it comes to a head, it's gonna be fascinating to watch how he responds because whatever happens, it's not gonna go well. For example, like a war with Iran, which James Mattis almost single-handedly pursued two weeks ago, because because James Mattis is the sober, reasonable one in the group who wanted to engage and destroy an Iranian naval vessel in international waters. So the, the smart guy, the warrior monk, again, which books he's reading, I don't know. Probably ones by Chuck Norris, but Stephen Ambrose, Stephen Ambrose, right? <laughs> <laughs> the warrior monk and in and, and all his intellectual capacity thought that it would be a good idea to go to war with Iran over a single shipment of possibly weapons that, you know, may or may not have been going to Yemeni rebels um, or as they also put on the table as sort of a draft uh, plan to put anywhere from 20 to 30,000 troops in Syria. Those are the scenarios you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine what Donald Trump would do to, if he were to, if he were expected to handle wars in Syria or Iran, like what kind of unmitigated catastrophes those would be? It is. Yeah. It boggles the mind. Oh, we'll find anyway. out. 
We'll find out. We'll get our we'll get our opportunity to find out what happened. Was oh he's God. gonna he's gonna kick their ass, right? Or what was it? What was the line he always said about ISIS? We're gonna bomb the hell out of them. We're gonna bomb. We're the gonna hell bomb out the hell out of them. Yeah, and yeah. somewhere somewhere across Greater Mesopotamia, we are going to drop bombs. That would come as something of a surprise to the people who live there and have sort of felt some of that but for the past fifteen years. Now that he's in office, though. Where have been the bombs? Because I think he discovered, oh, actually, fighting ISIS actually has been going pretty well. Yeah. In comparison, oh, it looks like the the guy who I criticized uh, kind of took care of it. I mean, <laughs> and I think that's well, one I mean, reason Trump can just sit there and not do anything. And probably, if he actually does nothing and says nothing, I I think that is where his poll numbers would actually that's rebound yeah. because he will get the effects of the Obama economy that is the windfall. Yep, absolutely. But that's, that's the thing. I mean, imagine his meltdown when he finds out that even the Obama victory isn't enough. Right. So let's say, let's say that under Donald Trump, ISIS gets wiped out at least as a, as an entity that holds terrain holds ground. Right. Right. What's going to replace it. It's going to be replaced by the Iraqi national government and all the, what the, the Shiite militias that, have basically allowed it to, to win back cities against ISIS. Mm-hmm. Now, who are the Shiite militias? Well, they're not they're not ISIS. They're not hanging people from you know archaeological ruins. But right. these are also the these are the people who you know their commander loves to use a power drill to kill people. These are people that like to sit there. They like to sit Sunnis on landmines and blow them up. Right. These these aren't like <laughs> these and, aren't democratic populists. And they are <laughs> also at least more closely aligned with Shia Iran. Yeah, absolutely. exactly. Yep. Right. No. And, and they are being so. commanded at times by Iran. And it's it's so it's not like, you know, imagine how. Imagine his tirade once he realizes that once ISIS is defeated, Iraq continues to be a problem. You mean he doesn't get to go hang out with Douglas MacArthur and go on a Navy ship and <laughs> sign a treaty? Um, right, exactly. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't get to do that. It will be. Get to have it, his will be it will be a shock for his system. I mean, I'm I'm as devastated as as everyone that each uh, American war doesn't end like Star Wars ends, where we all sit uh, perfectly aligned to the camera and the it's a musical. <laughs> um, and we all He's smile. Lock we look at one another and smile. And then it ends. He's going to lock himself in the Oval Office with that stupid flight jacket he wore down at Newport News. Right. <laughs> watching Stands of Iwo Jima and playing music really loud so Obama's wiretaps can't pick up what he's trying to tell his people. By the way, dear left, I mean, dear Team Lefty, why are you not calling Donald Trump a draft dodger more often? And when he goes on yeah. the next Forever War... If Team Lefty does not call him a draft dodger repeatedly, because I could at least yep. see how W. Bush can wiggle out of it. All right, he served in the National Guard. And okay. Yeah. Back when it was used to get out of having to go to Vietnam, different than the Guard today, um, which right. is used to fight our forever wars because, oh, we don't have enough. We don't have uh, a draft anymore. We don't have a draft, <laughs> so we need, to use, we need to use people who are fighting floods to, who are supposed to fight floods to fill the gap. Uh, shit, shit is expensive. Right. And uh, I think it's fair game that that he's called the draft dodger repeatedly and dresses up and dresses up as we I think we've joked about this and other people have too. 
and gets to play army, gets to dress up right. in these outlandish African and, and South American uh, generalissimo outfits <laughs> with all kinds of weird patches that don't make any sense. And, like they refer to no specific unit. They're just patches yeah. on this weird leather jacket that doesn't fit him and his goofy base and his goofy baseball cap. Who It's literally a patch of an aircraft carrier and an F-14 Tomcat. Like that's <laughs> it's it's those jackets. It's the it's like that jacket my dad bought me when he was in the Navy and I was five years old. Which there's a, I will which say, there, I will say Facebook... isn't Donald Trump peak boomer though? Draft dodger, check. Yes. Yeah. Narcissist, Absolutely. check. Yep. He is the natural conclusion of where this generation was heading for 40 years. Absolutely. I, I want to mention quickly that there is a picture that, of course, the one Alan's referring to of his Navy jacket. Uh, given, <laughs> there's, a, there's a Facebook picture of that. Feel free to go across yes. the Google sphere and find that. Um, it's there, man. But it's, I was yeah. very proud of that. That 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 uh, I wanted that jacket because uh, Tom Cruise wore one on Top Gun. Oh, my God, dude. Remember <sighs> Val Kilmer? Remember when Val Kilmer was socially acceptable? Man, yeah. remember Val Kilmer? Yeah. Oh. When he was, Dude, was on, back when he was growing vertically. And <laughs> I was living on a naval. <laughs> yeah. I was living on a naval air station in Guam, and uh, I didn't know I didn't know anything about America because I had been born and raised on naval bases abroad. All I knew about America was baseball, uh, Walt Disney movies, and Top Gun. Oh, so, and I gotta say, imagine imagine I my miss- disappointment when I moved to Millington. Tennessee. (laughs) The idea of America is so much more powerful than the reality of it. Yeah. Which is why we call it a country formed in an idea and a more perfect union. I still, I still, it's only, I guess it's only the first, not even the end of the first real full week of March. I want to go out and play volleyball in jeans now. Damn it. Well, you have to grease yourself up first. (laughs) By the way, those guys uh, were pretty greasy. That that ties that ties to the uh, not to uh, pitch a green loudly, but our first video was the lost Nixon tapes, and Nixon's singular obsession in this tape was talking about the Top Gun movie. Um, It's specifically (laughs) specifically that beach volleyball scene. Um, Anyone who has ever heard him talk about All in the Family can make the connection that if he had been president in 86, this would have been a conversation between him and Halderman for sure. So, Oh my God, <laughs> man. All right. So uh, better times. Uh, better times. <clears throat> they, yeah. they really were. There were simpler times when we, when we defeated the Soviet empire through sports and trickle down <laughs> economics. <laughs> but there was that concert in East Berlin. Oh. 1988. We all know who I'm talking about. Anyway, right? Is that Springsteen? Yeah, the concert at the Berlin Wall, 1988. Oh, I had no idea. I knew it was David Hasselhoff did it, and I knew he's huge. Uh, a couple of heavy metal bands across the wall. Yeah, mm. no, that was the thing, right? That there's a book, Springsteen on the wall. Ah, okay. Which will he's mean not a different enough fan. Which will mean Sorry. a different thing when he does it a second time. Uh, he'll be singing all of his the woody guthrie hits in uh spanish part two will be a downer (laughs) part two will be a downer so next topic is paul bannon's book club um according to uh paul blumenthal and jm Riger from the huffington post wrote a, a really disturbing article about um, Steve Bannon, who's Trump's chief strategist and a former editor at Breitbart. Bannon is absurd. Uh, he's obsessed 
with a breathtakingly racist 1973 novel called The Camp of Saints. Carson, since you're the one who uh, who brought this to our attention, uh, would you like to talk about The Camp of Saints? So The Camp of Saints is a fictional account of how Western civilization collapses from unrestrained waves of non-white immigration. Um, there is an, there is a, there's an evil, there's the, the villain, the main villain is a fecal matter consuming, um, Indian, something, so, something basically related to an Indian. He's something. literally, they literally refer to him as the turd eater. He's an Indian as demagogue. The turd Indian demagogue. So he's, so he's supposed to be from the Indian subcontinent. Uh, he represents, right. He's a, he's the, the, the demagogue, the figurehead for all the people of color who are washing ashore, Washington Shore in Europe and America, and base, base so uh, elected officials dither and they can't decide what to do effectively. Which, of course, it, the answer should be if you are if you speak to Steve Bannon or anybody else at CPAC is obviously just kill kill the kill the oncoming hordes of brown people. Yep, sink um, their boats. Sink their boats and kill them, but they don't. And then they <sighs> wash ashore like a basically like locusts, right? Like a plague. And then wipe out Western civilization and kill lots of white people. So this this ties into what I was I, what I brought this up to Alan over social media. Uh, this ties into the larger problem of the fact that picking on Steve Bannon, right? Steve Bannon is not the disease; he is merely a symptom. Conservatives have a long line of this stuff, a long, long, creepy line of this stuff, and all of their books, all the all the books that that mainstream conservative public figures and sort of the whole conservative book club movement are kind of centered around insane authors and a lot of crazy ideas. Right. And Rand, you can, you can make fun of Steve Bannon and his preference in books, but Alan Greenspan, Paul Ryan and uh, Rand Paul read and take seriously. And Rand, right. Is that the best way to solve the society's problems is to uh, withdraw into, you know, separate societies, walled off societies for rich people for the for the yeah. for the makers um and to and to hope that everybody starves to death because of because they won't have your creativity and your you know your riches to feed off of through taxation so right. i guess the starting point for this is that conservatives worship a lot of nutty authors yes steve bannon is a bad example of that and, and gross but we have a lot more in the way of specific books and kind of the broad movement of conservatives like conservatives and how they interact with their quotation marks literature in general <laughs> so anyway that's the jumping off point. Well, it was also, you know, I, I sent you that it wasn't the American Standard article. It was the um, the National Review article about all the books that conservatives claim as fun, like uh, foundational conservative tomes. Right. And you pointed out that like 75% of those books aren't written by conservatives. <laughs> yeah. And you have to like, you have to really stretch your imagination to get any kind of conservative vision out of them. It's it's the ability to claim Martin Luther King Jr., as a conservative, which, haha, good one, right? Clarence Thomas is the real civil rights activist because up is down and cows ride men. But also Saul Bellow and Tom Wolfe are real conservatives. They, they're they definitely going to be speakers at CPAC. Um, no, no, they're not. <laughs> yeah, no, this is, this is how it goes, right? Conservatives latch on to these people who are mainstream acceptable and popular and, and well-liked and then claim them as their own. Even though, again, right, if you ask, if you if they make any sort of measure, sort of an investigation to what these people believe is very much not conservative. And Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, did not die endorsing right to work laws. 
Um, <laughs> Tom Wolf and Saul Bellow will not be on Fox News as commentators anytime soon. So anyway. And to go back to the National Review, too. So when uh, Camp of Saints was published in the United States in 1975, it was reviewed uh, widely and it was panned by everybody who saw it as just blatantly racist. Kirkus Reviews, who, you know, it's a very esteemed review publication, said it was the, uh, <laughs> they likened its release to the release of Mein Kampf in English. But the <laughs> National Review, <laughs> the National Review actually gave it a favorable uh, review. Of course it did. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a review, not by some, you know, some crazy person like Alex Jones. It was a review by a professor at Dartmouth named Dr. Jeffrey Hart, who, uh, who said that liberals who didn't like the book uh, were people who didn't appreciate the value of whiteness, essentially. But, it, you know, it's like Carson said, this book isn't just, a, a, you know, one of Steve Bannon's crazy idiosyncrasies. This book was the only reason it's been published in English since 1975 is because it's become a favorite amongst anti-immigration activists and English only activists. They're the reasons why this book stays alive. The book, you know, it, it gained a following amongst Minutemen who were border patrolling and the alt-right. But it was also it was also a favorite amongst staffers at the Heritage Foundation as well. Like Rick, Rick Perlstein has a whole thing about this over the years about the kind of nutty tomes that circulate across conservative America. Uh, Skosin, uh, uh, Cleo, Cleo W. Skosin, uh, this nutty Mormon author that wrote about how government was, you know, everything was a giant communist conspiracy, right? John Birch, right? Yeah. I mean, the John Birch Society circulates all kinds of, circulated all kinds of crazy books. And of course, now we have the modern like conservative entertainment complex, right? And Ann Coulter is just as good as Ann Rand, right? Chalkboards, the chalkboards of Glenn Beck were their own novels, right? Glenn Beck has, right. Glenn Beck has a university. I don't know if it's still operational, Probably. but still... These are this is the alternative knowledge universe that they they inhabit, and then you come to find out that you can't take them in public, right? Mike Pence is shocked when he finds out that people boo him in New York City. Well, I wonder why, right? You dedicated <laughs> your life to being a divisive bigot. Um, I don't know why you're unpopular, right? This is the whole problem: is that ever since our our parents and grandparents couldn't pull themselves away from talk radio and Fox News, you can't take them out in public or have a conversation. Well, the the NFL Combine looks good this year. Also, did you know that Barack Obama is trying to poison our water supply? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, the weather's bad, but, you know, I, I'm dealing with it. How about how about you? Also, the new Black Panthers are trying to restrict voting only to people of color. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to go sit over here at another spot in the bar. Sorry about that. I, I didn't mean to start that conversation. <laughs> you know, like this is uh, this is how it goes. Like you can't have it's it, Donald Trump is the the, the full you know the full macro he's he's conservatism rich writ large is that a a white angry person that watches a lot of cable news and you can't have a normal conversation with and of course he's their he's their chosen leader i think it's revealing of what you guys have been saying for years uh, about what the right-wing project in america has been and it really has been white about white nationalism all along and the only thing i can take from this experience so far is unless everyone has the memory of a very small organism. We're going to remember this time period and the veneer of what GOP policy preferences are for all time has been shattered. They can't hide behind small government or your taxes <laughs> or less regulations. They can't hide behind these 
meaningless uh, trite statements anymore because this is what they're really for. They shouldn't be able to. You're right about that. You know, it also reminded me that, you know, Trump is just an American phenomenon, that he's he's part of a larger transnational struggle between uh, pluralist democracy and ethnic national authoritarianism, right? So that this is a book by a French author from the 1970s who said he was inspired to write the book when he was standing on a beach in, in South France and he was looking over the Mediterranean and he thought to himself – what if all those North African hordes could get over here? Because, you know, he's looking over at Algeria and France was uh, embroiled in its own form of Vietnam, which was the decolonization of Algeria. Actually, was it ever decolonized? I don't, well, it's independent now, but it's still very right. closely tied but they, to France. They left, right. They had, and, they, and, they, and the, uh, a segment of the French army attempted, right. to, br- attempted to violently overthrow <laughs> the government because right. they were going to give up Algeria as a colony. That's how serious they were about it. And that's why the French Foreign Legion is no longer allowed to, to practice parachuting in France. <laughs> um, but, I mean, this reminds me that the United States isn't just experiencing this alone, that there's this ethnic nationalism and authoritarianism is on the rise throughout Europe. And, it, you know, it's not just the United States versus the Putin regime. Uh, there's this whole undercurrent of kind of, uh, I hate to say it because it's a phrase that people like Steve Bannon like, this, it's a clash of civilizations. It's a clash of, of global ideas, right? It seems like that we are, uh, we're on the edge of some greater co- ideological and cultural conflict. And it has nothing to do with Islam versus white Christendom, but it's uh, it's more of kind of a, a political ideology. Maybe, does that sound too alarmist, I guess? <laughs> no. But it's the natural culmination. Like you said, it's the natural culmination of what's happened for the past 40 years. Donald Trump is the most recent iteration of a discredited segregationist rising to high office, right? right? Ronald Reagan was a better segregationist, a more avowed segregationist, and more, and oftentimes more able to convey his messages as a segregationist, as governor of, of the nation's largest and most pluralistic state. Mm. Asked about housing discrimination. Ronald Reagan was very straightforward. Absolutely, you should be able to discriminate against people of color, right? Of course, people should be able to decide who they who they sell real property to. Martin Luther King Jr., according to Ronald Reagan, got what he had coming. He deserved it because he was encouraging lawbreaking. Yeah. Uh, when he and then when he was president, he famously sided with apartheid South Africa because Nelson Mandela, who we all know has turned out to be, uh, you know, demonized and evil. He was obviously on the wrong side of history. Uh, but yeah. Ronald Ronald Reagan was pretty sure that he he belonged in prison, uh, and not as the president of that country because they just weren't ready for democracy. So, yeah. um, conservatives in America have a long explanation about why none of that matters, and particularly like talking about National Review now. Here we are <laughs> digging into digging into another shameful episode of the flagship of American conservatism. <laughs> uh, their their editor, who was a longtime segregationist. And went so far as to travel to Great Britain to try to debate uh, James Baldwin in defense of racial segregation in the 1960s. So it's not like William Buckley or Ronald Reagan were bad people. They just didn't think that black people were ready for democracy. So, you know. Well, and by all accounts, Jeff Sessions and Sean Spicer are wonderful human beings. (laughs) And you interact them on a personal level. But it doesn't mean that their their ideas aren't abhorrent, right? Right, exactly. So you're right. I do think as a class, I think, yeah, to verify what you're saying, 
it does seem like a pretty strong ideological clash. Part of me doesn't want to call Donald Trump a fascist, but another part of me is like, we need to call him what he is. <laughs> if, we're, if we're going to actually <laughs> his policies, him. Are, his policies are certainly fascist. Donald Trump likes to call himself and his followers, his followers, excuse me, his supporters like to call him the president of action. Ironically, that's also what they call Benito Mussolini. But, but I've got to say, he's not the president. Executive orders can be, uh, you know, Trump gets impeached, VP Pence can repeal a few of those executive orders. Yeah. The next Democratic president can, re he repealed all of the Obama executive orders, or a lot of them. Uh, governing by executive order only goes so far. Yeah. I mean, if there's one thing that, if, if there's one thing that my, my Margaritaville parrot head dad had right, when after the election, when I was kind of losing my shit and I was like, look at all these terrible things Donald Trump was doing. My dad would infuriate me by saying, oh, you need to settle down. You're being too alarmist. In a way, he's right that the one thing that we've got working in our favor is the fact that we have a separation of powers, mm -hmm. uh, that the judiciary actually is doing what it's supposed to be doing. I can appreciate I can appreciate the fact that he just wants to uh, chill out on a beach <laughs> and drink margarita margaritas that's my swim dream in a, entire generation yeah, swim in a urine infested <laughs> pool until he gets a uti uh, my, so I, I can appreciate that now uh my my dream is for most of the generation to chill out on a beach and for some of us to make enough money <laughs> to buy their retirement um, so we can start running the country step, because it's step away, it. step away from the levers of power and decision making. You're only yeah. going to make it worse. Here's a margarita. <laughs> so it, clock it is. Ah, that's fantastic. I gotta say, until we millennials have to be willing to adopt some of that generational language. Um, some of them. I was in a New York Dems Young Dems meeting the other week, and it was very revealing. They, their, their MO is exactly like the current boomer liberals. And if these are the future, if this is the future of the party, this mindset, I personally think the party's done. If that, well, what's their, what's their demographic? What's, and what's their economic background? I, that I would say the demographic is a little bit more reflective of the party, but still not reflective of the party. Probably far too many guys in there, but racially it was probably, closer to what mm -hmm. you would want out of the dem out of the democratic uh background uh gender wise ivy league, ivy league trends um i wouldn't say ivy league uh, but i would say economically comfortable and okay. basically for the most part the locals and what i've learned here is you know this is one of the last machine states left in the union and i think all political machines need to die and something should replace them but their mindset was really that uh I literally heard this quote. I worship the altar of Robbie Mook was an actual quote. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, that, that worked so well for us in the last election. Um, and what I heard was a lot of talk about strategy. Um, and, and a lot, it really felt like a student Senate thing. Um, yes. And I heard Sweet. no discernible talk about issues or the realities Sweet. of what the country faced. It was all about fighting Trump. And if Sweet all we Jesus. do is fight Trump, all we do is fight Trump, we're going to get nowhere. We need to be taking this time to come up with an alternative for this country. Our entire to Yeah, exactly. We need to focus on policy because what, policy is what's going to advance the cause of justice in the United States. And policy is also going to be what takes down 
Donald Trump and his allies. So, I mean, because that again, Donald Trump is a symptom. He's not the illness. Right. He's not some weird aberration. I mean, four years from now, if we God, God willing, we we win the House and the and the Senate back. Uh, the Republicans are going to insist that Donald Trump wasn't really a Republican. Right. Um, and and I don't mean to call out and pick on young Dems. I'm glad they're involved. But I will say that while this is an egotistical statement, but I believe the party needs us three a lot more than we need the party. That is my worldview at this point, is that young people and young people that don't think like the party establishment right now are very, very, very important to the future of the party. Hey, man, look, I'll, I'll help the party out if they'll pay me a salary. <laughs> right. Which is, yeah, right. And which, they were, which they've been generally refusing to do for the last couple of decades because you have to make room for people who are going to elect Hillary Clinton. Right. Yeah. I, just, I just see no path back to power if Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are the symbolic leaders of the party. The time yeah. for following the Democratic Party leadership is over. Yeah. Clearly, you know, Carson and I agree with you, um, but we need to move on. But we are talking about generations. We are talking about millennials, and maybe we can explore um, your thoughts a little bit uh, if we if we frame it um, in the context of our next topic. Uh, can millennials undo what the recession did to their earnings, which is the title of an article that was published by or written by Jillian B. White in The Atlantic. Despite the fact that millennials are the most educated and, and the most productive group of workers in American history, they still don't make nearly as much money as boomers and Xers at their age. Um, White concludes that in order to turn the tide of our generation's financial future, it won't be enough for millennials just to work harder. Uh, they need help from legislators. So what she's citing is a study by the Center for American Progress, which is a liberal think tank which is one of the few ways an overeducated person like myself can make a living off of thinking. Um, <laughs> so the Center of American Politics uh, did a study comparing the median earning for a 30-year-old millennial in 2014 to a 34-year-old Xer in 2004 and a 30-year-old boomer in 1984. The study found that millennials today at age 30 would make about, uh, make about as much as an Xer did in 84, which is $19 and $30 and $19 and 30 cents an hour. Uh, and a dollar less than boomers, um, at the same age. Um, this is despite the fact that millennials are highly educated or more highly educated than their predecessors and 70% more productive than boomers at the same age. Um, so, so much for millennials being lazy. The, another, <laughs> another interesting fact is that um, where there's a real gap between the generations, it's among uh, people without college degrees. So millennials without college degrees fare much worse in income because of deindustrialization. Since education and productivity levels are often used to predict the cohort's wages, what conclusions can we glean from this study? White offers a couple solutions to the, I guess, the wage gap between uh, you know, to millenn between millennials and their predecessors, she says that millennials could join unions, Carson, and engage in collective bargaining to attain higher wages and more job security. Uh, however, millennials are also the least likely of any generation to belong to a union. Boo. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And uh, the Center for American Progress also calls for government intervention, like passing laws to make unionization and aid unemployed workers. Um, they're also calling for paid leave. And she concludes with something, a theme that runs through almost every ep- of our episodes. Uh, these changes might help boost income, but it still leaves the problem of heavily credentialed young people who are spending ever-growing amounts of money to secure degrees that are ever less likely to guarantee them work. So, guys, thoughts on uh, millennials doing more work, being more productive, and yet earning less? So, first of all, damn the Center for American Progress for stealing our tagline for this uh, podcast. <laughs> um, there's got to be a lawsuit in there. I feel like they always we could make some money off of that. Money. Well, both of you guys oh went God. to law school, for crying out loud. <laughs> so, first of all, there's that. They owe us some money. Uh, we'll get back to that. Um, second of all, it's important to think about that is that if we're talking about how to make improvements, right, let's let's find ways to build towards something that we can win in terms of legislation, right? We can win bipartisan support for. If we're talking about fiscal restraint, uh, <laughs> encouraging people to join unions, right, you're talking about a philosophical position that costs no money. Uh, Thomas Frank, right, writes a lot. Writes a lot about solutions that don't cost anything. Mm-hmm. Encouraging collective bargaining and strengthening uh, labor laws in a way that actually benefits workers doesn't cost any money. We don't have to raise taxes if more people join UFCW and then get Walmart and Macy's and Target and McDonald's to pay them fifteen dollars an hour. So you know, there's that. <clears throat> um, people, people can feel <laughs> much in the same way. I invited people to say hateful things about us for our anti-Jimmy Buffett tirade last week. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe they'll write in and say that I'm biased because I work for SEIU, but <clears throat> uh, we can do, we can cross that bridge when we get there. Second, um, I guess, and Troy is going to expand on this because I know he will, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, <laughs> the, the whole question of, you know, this, this really dispels the myths about how we got here and what's happening now is that whether it's our, our uncle that listens to too much talk radio or anybody else in the family that just doesn't like talking to us at Thanksgiving because we disagree with their, we disagree with what they see on cable news. You know, it's not a problem of hard work. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a problem of uh, everyone, you know, all these, all these 25 year olds got art degrees. Um, <laughs> those jobs just aren't there anymore. And the fact that people refuse, the people over the age of 50 refuse to retire that has nothing to do with our capacity or our capability to work and to function in the normal economy, right? People with graduate degrees in 2017 would be doing quite well in 1985 or 1975 um, if, you know, if, if they had been in similar situations. So um, well, I don't think I don't, nothing, I don't think a lot of people, you know, our elders understand how competitive the job market is, for, right? You know, it's it's gotten so competitive that like career advisors are now telling millennials, hey, have a resume, but fuck the resume, because what you really need to do is know somebody who already works for one of these companies. Uh, otherwise, you your name, your resume will never come across the desk of the person that needs to see it. <laughs> right. So don't have. Merit is meaningless. Right. Just, yeah, because merit yeah. is stupid. Yeah. Because your your degree doesn't matter and your skill set doesn't matter. Even though you are exceptionally educated and you have a wonderful skill set, 
The problem is, is there's an entire generation of people who have the exact same credentials. And this is why neoliberals, neoliberals or neoliberalism thought should be purged from the party because it doesn't work. And it never has. Ivy League schools are predominantly a social club of networks. And Absolutely. well, that's we yeah. running candidates Absolutely. all from those eight schools or really three schools, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> we're going to continue to look like typical intellectual elites. I well, think we, it's we, hard. We, I think it's hard to pin us three specifically as intellectual elites, even though we are we have final degrees because we didn't go to Harvard or Yale and we served in the military. But it's really it's going to be really, really easy to pin some of the folks I've been meeting in this city. If they're the future Chuck Schumer's and Nancy Pelosi's, it's going to be really, really easy for this party to die a long, long, painful, slow death because the messenger no, is disliked. No, absolutely. I mean, it's just so. I mean, if you continue to pull from those those social clubs, like you said, um, you will be alienating what ninety five percent or more more than that, yeah, of the American people. Right. I mean, it, you know, it's. Um, 50% of the new PhD hires uh, in American history, uh, 50% of the jobs that open up every year are immediately filled by students from the Ivy League colleges. Right? right. And they don't need it because they come from families that could absolutely write them off. You know, they could bankroll their whole existence, to be honest. Right. They, these are folks, and I'm not saying all of them, but if you went to an Ivy League, you're far more likely to never have to work a day in your life. As where if you come from a state school or even other private colleges, you need to work to keep existing. Well, and the, you know, the other thing too, you brought this up too, is if you went, if you went to a school like we did, Minnesota State University Moorhead, mm-hmm. it's a great school. <laughs> it was what, what was available to me. Yep. Uh, but um, they do not have the networks and it's the networks that matter. Um, right. Almost everybody I know that we graduated with, I know works hard. Their fault isn't the fact that they're lazy or they want too much. You know, the things that millennials want, and it's not too much to ask, they want a good paying job, a job that will allow them to, number one, take care of their family and pay off their goddamn student loans. Two, <laughs> they want security. I mean, they're not, they don't feel entitled to it to get a job and to hold that job forever, but they want some sense of what they bring to the table is valuable. Um, and they also want time off because our generation works harder. We work more hours than a lot of other generations uh, just because a lot of these jobs that we're working now are white collar jobs because quite frankly, it's the 21st century and those are the jobs that are available to people. Yeah. Um, we work really hard at those jobs. And so our work-life balance is really important. So it's not too much to ask for good wages, job security, and time off the clock. Right? I, I view it as fundamentally the most important thing going forward for the future of this economy is to improve wages of millennials because the facts are this is a consumer spending based economy. And if the largest cohort in American history doesn't have disposable income and our, our spending habits are already much, much lower. Yeah. So I don't know if that will change, but what could change is maybe a few more of us buy houses and buy a car uh, for going upstate or something or whatever we're going to do. If we have, you know, better economic outcomes in, in terms of our income and wages. I don't see this economy surviving in the 21st century world if we do not address this problem because it is propelled by consumer spending and bubbles. Mm-hmm. I just don't see it surviving on the level that 
the Ayn Rand worshippers think it will. So here's my here, here's my recipe for democratic success. One, uh, student loan reform, student loan re- relief. Right. The four day weekend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Sure. Universal basic income. Definitely. Yep. And increased wages. Those are the yep. four things we need, and those all four of those things affect working class millennials, professional millennials, and high income millennials. All those they they affect all three because there are a lot of poor working class millennials, um, and we know them who mm-hmm. don't have a college degree, who work either manual labor or labor or in the service industry, who have student loans, um, and by no fault of their own, you know. Uh, it's just that's the situation. So um, yeah, but yeah, that's that's my recipe for success. I've always said it that the the party the party that can figure out how to do those four things will have the loyalty of an entire generation, like my grandfather's generation in FDR. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and I think um, our cohort is positioned to do that, but it's important that we win the arguments within our generation. In other words, if our generation is an echo of the boomers which was the original title of millennials. They called the millennials, the echo boomers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, if we're an echo and not an, an, a distinct alternative, in other words, if we're not closer to our grandparents values uh, or that generation, because we're certainly closer to those experiences just in a 21st century world. Um, I do think we're going to see a great depression in the next 20 years. I do think yeah. we could see a world war. But I also see both of those po- terrible possibilities as an opportunity to actually rebuild and restructure society economically, politically, and yes, yeah, socially. The item, the item that I would harp on about like the agenda moving forward too is that whether it's the stuff that the whether it's the items that the Center for American Progress proposed in written form or what we're talking about now. You know, there are solutions, right? They require action. They require effort. There are, there's not going to be everyone learning to code is not going to be a solution. There can't be two, there can't be 180 million coders. There can't be 180 million people coming up with apps for iPhones. It's just not possible. And the, you know, this goes to the structure of the American economy today and in the future. The majority of Americans do not have do not have college degrees. Um, that's that's pretty important to remember. So. You know, if we're gonna if we're gonna build an economy for people that for every for everyone, if we're gonna build an economy that works for everyone, it requires investing in specific kinds of policies that, like we talk about, raise wages, you know, increase overall access to consumer goods and to health insurance. Um, you know, we need we need we need involvement. We can't retreat. You know, the thing that is especially frustrating about the way I kind of see the the battles between boomers and millennials boomers constantly fall back on particularly the boomers in my life um we can discuss whether or not that is the case in yours but they constantly fall back on the claim like you know we're doing everything we can we're doing everything we can but uh also we want to live in jimmy buffett's condo you know (laughs) or they vote or they vote for or they vote for uh donald trump one election and then barack obama another we can't have wild wild swings between people who claim that they're going to you know bring us back to 1953 uh and then people who want to deal with the 21st century and have to accept the fact that we're you know alan and carson are never going to go work on uh, a ford motor company uh, assembly line that's just not in the cards so 
we need involvement and we need we need realistic expectations about what what the future holds um and that future doesn't include everyone driving uber or inventing a new app so we have to be realistic about that uh Hi. this has been the margin of error thanks for joining us uh troy thanks for being on the show no problem carson as always, always good talk to you always a joy good to see all you. right everybody here's the tagline take care of each other out there you're not so nervous you're not so frail someone watches you you won't fail be not so nervous be not so frail be not so nervous be not so frail be not so sorry Forget them now, it's done. When you wake up, you'll find that you can run. Be not so sorry for what you've done. Be not so fearful.